Fat Triathlon Show 408. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host, Michael, and on today's episode, I interview Kerry McGauley. Kerry is Associate Professor at the Mid-Sweden University, and uh, as you will have seen from the title of this episode, it is a two-part interview. Uh, today's part is about Kerry's own training, actually, because she has had a massive amount of success as an age group athlete, in particular this season, most recently winning her age group in the 713 World Championships. And the reason that I want to talk about her training is really how does somebody that has the knowledge in physiology, the scientific understanding, the exercise science background that Carrie has, how do they actually go about uh, their own training at the level that she is racing at? And um, yeah, how does that factor into what they do in training wise? I think that can be really uh, informative and interesting to hear. So that's what we spend this part of the interview and this entire episode today uh, talking about. And then in the next part of uh, the interview, which will be in two episodes uh, in two weeks, episode 410, uh, in that part we will talk about the female athlete and that will be um, more of getting into the science on the female athlete, the menstrual cycle, mother athletes, and some other topics. And those are topics that Carrie has been directly involved in as a researcher and a scientist. And uh, that's so that's, I guess, a bit more of an academic, but also, of course, we go into practical applications of that. So, uh, yeah, hopefully, you stay tuned for that one in two weeks' time. But before we go into this part one of the uh, interview with Carrie, big thanks to our sponsors, Form. The Form Smart Film Goggles give you real time feedback in your swim training right on the goggle lens including splits pace target rate, and heart rate this means that you can execute your swim workouts better and get a better idea of your ability to hold certain paces and stroke rates and understand when and why you start to slow down uh, the best thing is that you can see and interpret this data in real time within the session so it's actually actionable and it can help you right then and there you don't have to go onto your computer after a session and and uh, do all sorts of uh, crazy analysis you can very easily see the basic data right in, within each interval of your session and within the session itself be able to self-correct especially if you're swimming solo it also adds a lot of fun and engagement to your swim training which might make you look forward to your swim sessions in a completely different way which is also an important factor and you can get 15% off the goggles with the code tts15 on forumswim.com forward slash tts and thank you to senate the senate indoor swim trainer allows you to improve your technique power and swim training consistency even when you're short on time it's a great tool for busy athletes because you can do a quality workout in just 15 minutes at home even on days when you don't have time to get to the pool and it is a perfect complement to pool and open water swimming as it allows you to focus specifically on key aspects of your swimming like your catch and your power and you can isolate them more easily than you can in the water you can try the senate risk-free for up to 30 days so if you don't love it just send it back and you can get 20 percent off your first order on senatesvinture.com forward slash tts now without any further ado here's part one of my interview with professor kerry mcgauley welcome to that triathlon show kerry how are you doing yeah i'm good thank you thanks for having me it's a pleasure to have you on. Can you start by introducing yourself and tell tell us a bit more about who you are? Yeah, and I guess oh, I don't know whether to do it from a like professional like perspective or yeah, what what I'm. I mean, I'm a I'm employed as an associate professor, a senior lecturer at Mid Sweden University, um, and I'm based. Well, 
the campus there is up in Östersund, but I actually work remotely. So I live now uh, down in Brighton in the UK, but I did, did live up in Östersund for quite some time. And I work as a senior researcher within the uh, Swedish Winter Sports Research Centre, uh, which means I actually do a lot of work kind of or have historically done quite a lot of work for the last 10 years or so with cross-country skiers and biathletes. Um, and yeah, I also train and race in triathlon. But, um, you know, I do that as an age grouper. And I my main sport when I was younger was football, soccer. So I played kind of in the women's premier league in, in the uk as i was growing up and played until i don't know kind of my late 20s i was doing my phd down in brighton as well and um yeah it got to a lot of i was playing kind of national league and it was a lot of traveling and it was a lot of time and um i kind of had gotten more into my endurance training and just like the fitness aspect aspect mainly maybe a bit more than yeah like playing football by that point. So I kind of transitioned and started doing a little bit more triathlon, I guess, in my 30s and then just kind of, yeah, continued with that. And I, I really love that sport. Mm, yeah, well, that, that's a really interesting background. I, I had read and heard that you played football, but I didn't realize that it was at uh, quite that higher level. Which team did you play for or teams? Yeah, and I mean, I started back in the, I guess it would have been early 90s, about 1990 when I was like 12 or 13. And I started playing, the team was called Horsham and then it developed into Three Bridges. That was my kind of first team. Um, and then I played for Millwall in London. And then during my PhD, I was playing for Brighton. So they were all typically uh, Premier League or like National League teams. Um, and then when I was doing my Masters over in uh, Perth in Australia, I played for the like the Western Australia State team. Um, and they were kind of a spin-off from Perth Glory, the Western, the Western Waves so various teams right yeah and uh what about your your research then on on the professional side can it what what is what are the research areas that you have studied and also maybe what did you do your phd in to to get a, a bit of a picture of of all the things that you've done in your academic career yeah and that's probably followed a little bit i guess my own sporting interests i don't know how it's happened that way but i did a i did an undergraduate degree at loughborough university in the uk in sports science and mathematics I was really into maths as well so I kind of I had a job originally like in the city and kind of finance for a little while and then traveled and stuff and so it was a few years before I went back and did a master's and like I said I did that over in Australia uh, and I did that under uh, Professor David Bishop and he's kind of yeah physiologist I don't know if you've had him on the show I but, have um, yes yeah yeah so really good guy and uh, he was focusing a lot or working quite a lot at that time on sort of repeated sprintability in team sport athletes um, and with my soccer background, football background, um, that's what I focused on as well. So I worked with the women's team that I was playing with and the setup there. Um, so, yeah, I was looking at um, actually a little bit like the kind of aerobic contribution to repeated sprint ability, but also the amount of time it took to recover um, muscle, like metabolically um, in the muscle and performance wise in terms of kind of doing a repeated sprint bout and then having a certain amount of time to recover and being able to perform again to the same degree. Um, so that was my master's thesis. That was a master by research. Uh, and from there I got um, like a PhD kind of studentship back in the UK. Um, and that was a completely different in critical power. So my whole PhD was on then endurance exercise 
based predominantly in well cycle all my experiments were were using cycling as a mode of exercise um and the title of that is like the practical applications of critical power um and as soon as i had finished that i don't think i ever went near critical power again <laughs> which we might or might not get onto um but yeah from there i kind of i had a job at bath university as a teaching fellow after that for a couple of years uh, and then i was searching for a postdoc and that's when i moved to Sweden um I wanted to I really wanted to work with cross-country skiers because you know I, I was really into physiology at that time um, very much applied physiology and I was just kind of intrigued I'd learned to cross-country ski I'd lived like in ski resorts and and stuff um and I was looking to work more central Europe because I had French and German I'd learned those languages and um and I've got kind of Swiss nationality as well. So I was looking in that region and and then I came across this Swedish Wintersport Research Centre and it was kind of founded by Bengt Saltine and it was all people, it was kind of like, wow. And it was all working with cross-country skiers, which I thought would be so interesting from a physiological perspective applied to sport because they were always in all of, you know, the textbooks as having like the most extreme uh, aerobic capacity. Um, and it And it was just really interesting for me to do that and um, yeah, so I got offered this postdoc position by Bengt Saltine actually at a conference in Australia and and moved out there in 2011 uh, and started off as a postdoc and then became senior lecturer and moved, worked my way through. I was director of the research centre for three years before I moved back to the UK where I now work remotely. Yeah, so it's been, it's been quite varied um, doing stuff in team sports and into endurance sports and then into snow sports um, and very kind of extreme. Uh, endurance sport and then and that became very applied because we're very closely linked to the Swedish cross-country ski or Swedish ski federation and the cross-country branch of that and the Swedish biathlon federation so we work a lot with the development teams the ski like gymnasiums like the high schools and then like the national teams as well um all because mo- most of them a lot of them all of the biathlon is based in Östersund and a lot of the skiers are based in Östersund as well so we have a really close connection to elite athletes and that's why so much of my research in the last 10 years has been very applied and with very high level athletes. Yeah, that's that's really fascinating and and I guess it's on that in that vein that I want to actually start talking about your own triathlon and how you as a coming from a physiology background getting into a lot of applied research and then and then getting but getting into traveling yourself and and now being a really good age grouper so just to run a, a summary of your year this year so far i guess you've won your age group in the world triathlon long distance championships you won the british middle distance championships and you just recently won your age group in 7.3 world championships so so a super impressive year uh like 100 percent, and that's very hard to achieve so so from that perspective what with what you know as a from your professional background and and what you've learned as an as an athlete i I just wanted to really get into your own training to start with so maybe what is your process for just planning out your training and and how you how you go about reaching these performances basically um yeah good good question and and it's quite hard to answer in a, in a kind of cohesive way but I, I think like if I kind of zoom out and look at what I did this season because that is the best season I've had um from in terms of the results that you've just kind of <laughs> listed I mean that that even sounds impressive to me um 
but it was a kind of a concerted effort and a decision to to kind of go a little bit more all in and and see what I could achieve I guess this season and put some other things to the side so what I did was um probably September October because obviously we'd had COVID and in that time I just kind of did lots of different events I did like a coast to coast up in Scotland and a swim run and uh, you know all different kind of things and adventures and stuff um, but I wanted to be a bit more goal orientated and specific around, yeah, like winning certain age group or, or podiuming or doing as well as I could in certain age group events. So I sat down probably like September, October last year in my kind of off season um, and looked at the calendar. So at that point, you know, in terms of the training planning and how I go about it, to me, all of this feels very simple and natural. But I think that's because I've got probably acquired so much expertise. So maybe it's not, I don't think it is to other people because I, I teach this, I run workshops and, and people are kind of have got no idea. So it kind of makes it quite clear how much I do know, but it's all just feels intuitive if, if you know what I mean. But I, I sat down and, and the first thing that I'll do or that I did at that point in any case was to, you know, put those races in the diary. And it was like, right, what are my goals going to be? And, um, I had the 70.3 slot since like 2019 and I deferred it to, to Lahti um, because I didn't want to go to the US races and you couldn't defer it anymore. So I knew I was going to that. Um, so I thought, right, I, I, it would be great to try and podium at that. So that will be kind of my A race at the end of August. And then I kind of worked back from that and the British champs happened to fall really nicely, I think six or seven weeks before that. Um, and that was an outlaw race at Holcomb, which I really wanted to do. I hadn't done an outlaw race and um, nice venue, a different place, a really nice place to go and visit. Um, so I do factor in all of these things as well. What do I actually want to do? Where do I want to be? Who do I want to go there with friends or family and so on? Um, and then I kind of, I've, I've gotten to the point that 70.3 isn't scary. And it, it's not that it's not challenging, but it doesn't scare me in terms of like really having to step up on the training. So I, that's why I put in Ibiza long distance because I don't do Ironman. So for me, that's kind of a, an overload or, or like stepping over a comfort zone in some way. And that fitted in really well because it was so early and that was kind of early May. So I thought, well, that's a great first goal to have to really incentivize and motivate me to train hard through the winter because I'm quite scared of that 30K run. And I've done the long distance world champs once before when it was in Sweden, um, I don't know, six years ago or something. And I died on the run. It was hot. I had a quite a bad rate I, I think I was leading off the bike and then I just lost so many places or like, I think I came fifth in the end but you know I just remember it not being good um so that that was kind of like in my mind so it basically allowed me to prepare really well through the winter highly motivated and then I just don't do too many races or I decided not to do any like, like what I term almost like junk races because they just take it out of you I think mentally physically you can't, I don't like to go into a race and not try and win. So I find I have to taper and recover and so on and so on. So they're the only three races I did. I didn't even do any local races or small, small races. I did some 10 Ks, half marathon, some aquathlons and bits and bobs like that. Um, and some training stuff, you know, through transitions. But I think I've done triathlon now for such a long time that I don't really need to do sort of warm up races or sprint and Olympic and that kind of thing. Um, so anyway, like long so I put the races in is the first thing I do. And then I kind of figure out a plan to right, there's a there's a goal for Ibiza and that goal is a bit more distance and that's what I need to kind of prepare for. And then I need to kind of pick up the speed for the British champs and then pick up the speed again 
like for the 70.3 worlds that was kind of kind of my plan so I'm very much I, I assess the demands of the event and then I train for those demands and I think I think people get lost a bit maybe and I don't know if they don't maybe do that enough um, or if they get a bit scooped up with I guess what everybody's saying that you ought to do um, I don't know but like, I, I don't do kind of any threshold testing I don't do any critical power testing I don't do any FTP testing I, I did a couple of FTP test just because I was part of a training group on an indoor cycle kind of thing um so it was just one of the sessions that we did but I don't like work off it um so I probably do things a lot less scientifically almost than some people might think but I think that's because I'm able to intuitively assess things all the time myself um but yeah I mean I could talk forever about like how I plan and what I do and what decisions I do but I think I think maybe we'll get on to talking about this biopsycho social model later a bit more maybe but that that's where I'm always thinking from I've got physical physiological biological outcomes that I need to kind of aim for but there's also a lot of psychological components that I need to be prepared for and that I think gets overlooked and then look I'm an age grouper like we do it for fun it's a hobby right so I need to, uh, you know I want and I need to have those kind of social aspects as well plus I've got a really busy job and I travel a lot. So I think that's the, in terms of planning, that's the other thing I have to really work around is all the conferences and travel overseas that I do, which really does disrupt your, your system and your schedule. So you have to be, you have to plan in for it. That will resonate with a lot of listeners, I'm sure. So can we start, uh, start there? How do you approach travel and maybe when you have really busy periods at work? If you already know in advance that this is going to be a period where I have travel, how what what does that mean for how you plan your training mm. um i'll start with a caveat and say that i live alone and i have no kids and that helps and it's almost on purpose <laughs> um in in terms of like you know life choices um because there there are the time consuming things that occur in lots of people's lives who are age group athletes as well as a job so i actually only have the kind of job and the travel really to to manage um, besides kind of friends and family and other, other bits and bobs like that. But I tip it, I try to be ahead of the game and know where I'm going and when I'm going places. Um, and then I work my schedule around it. For, so for example, I typically, you know, when I have to go to Sweden, I, I usually go to Sweden in December for a, a week or two for some teaching stuff that I do with on campus because the rest of my teaching's remote. Um, so I have some campus teaching, but, you know, December in Östersund, you can cross-country ski. So I'll just load that as a volume week of cross-country skiing. Um, we also have a really nice pool there. It's just a 25-meter pool, but I'll get a lane to myself, you know. So I'll hook up with my friends that live in Östersund in that uh, location. Um, and because I've lived there for a long time, I can kind of – I can do my swimming – don't tend to run much because it's really quite cold and I can cross country ski instead and I might not bike when I'm there either but that's fine but I account for that and I think that's another thing that maybe people probably get a bit too hung up on look we don't know what is the best way to train and we definitely don't know what is the best way to train for you and for me and for every other individual do you know what I mean so we've got ideas and we've got principles and concepts but to go and cross country ski for a week might well be better than to carry on swim biking and running for a week so you, you kind of just use it you know as a cross training a way to mix up a way to recover maybe some for, from some run volume but it might be that I really work hard 
doing my run volume for a month before that and put in a 10k just before I go to Sweden and then I've got a week sort of off my legs doing other things and recovering a bit and then it might be that I'll plan in right then I'm gonna train for a half marathon um, in another block of period where period of time where I know I'm going to be at home so I have to make sure that you know I get the biking done when I'm at home if I'm not traveling with a bike and what can I do um, as alternative training when I'm away um, because I had a lot of trips this year so then I went to that I was back in Sweden again for a conference in February um, and then I was in um, I, I, I had another conference in, in Austria March April time and I went skiing with friends there as well so you know that conference was a was a was a, a conference for like uh, uh science and skiing for example and I know I know that I've got a lot of friends there that I can do um ski mountaineering with Odin Sandback for example he I think he's been on your podcast as well yeah so I remember I went out with him and the Norwegian guys you know I I can't like they're way better than me but I'm just hanging on the back trying to learn some technique but you know that can be a really hard two hour session up a mountain um, or I'll go and do some like mountain running. So I think you just have to be like totally comfortable that cross training is fine and mixing it up is fine. And you don't have to, I don't think get bogged down with the amounts of training hours or swim, bike, run distances that you have to do because nobody knows that you have to do that. Nobody knows that ski mountaineering, cross country skiing isn't just as good or if not better. And then taking a break and going, skiing with your mates for five days is also great and you know you do you do that but you need to plan in for it you know that you can't train as much in that time so it's like that's that's a little mini break in my periodization I'll train really hard before it you know that's a break and then I'm back on it and I'm refreshed and revitalized and I've got energy again or motivation again so I think you just have to plan it in basically around your periodization but it has to be planned Mm. Yeah, I think those are great points, and it, it reminds me of uh, maybe a few years back when uh, Kilian Journey and uh, Emily Forsberg were really dominating trail and ultra running, uh, Norway-based couple. But uh, Emily is, of course, Swedish, and Kilian is uh, Spanish. But and Kilian, I would be careful to use as an example of anything because he's just uh, a different <laughs> species, I think. But but maybe Emily Forsberg is, seems more human, so she's a good example that they they would basically ski mountaineer for five months uh between october november and and march and then they would run for a week and and start their season in april and and they would come out and win the the first races off of one week of run training basically and uh in really competitive fields so of course ultra ultra running is but that was that was at the still at the world-class level in a small sport it's not as uh, not as big a sport as triathlon so yeah if you're a professional triathlon triathlete you you <laughs> can't do that probably but but it shows that to quite a high to, to a very high level you can actually use cross training and and do really well uh as as at least as an anecdote that that's a really interesting one i find um but the other uh thread there that i wanted to pull a bit more was the since you mentioned the the biopsychosocial um approach and uh yeah can you talk a bit more about how that factors in so and what that means for those that are not familiar with it yeah um well i mean i would just sort of describe it as a as a framework that you can use to think about um the biological the psychological and the social factors that influence performance let's put it like that and 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 the thing is this kind of model this biopsychosocial model didn't come from sports science or from performance sport um 
I think it typically came from kind of medicine and maybe psychiatry um, to kind of see how those factors would impact um, upon patients. And now it's used in terms of sport, I think it's used a bit more really in sports medicine and kind of injury and pain management and things like that. Um, but I find it perplexing really that it that it hasn't taken off more and not necessarily that particular name of that particular model, but just the integration <laughs> of those factors. And I think in like sports coaching, if you look at sports coaching, science and publications, I think it's a little bit more um, maybe integrated in terms of looking at the physical training effects and the combination of kind of like the psychological factors that athletes have to deal with and maybe like the social factors as well. But from, from a sports science perspective, um, it's not a big research area, which I find, yeah, like I said, really perplexing because athletes are really complex and performance is really complex. And I think we've got hung up like historically, traditionally, maybe because sports science has stemmed a little bit from, from sports medicine and the physical and the biological parameters. Um, but we really work in silos uh, and we know that we do that, like physiologists and psychologists don't really interact with each other very much in their research. Um, and certainly not with sociologists, like they're just kind of completely different populations. Um, and there aren't really the research methods either to integrate these biopsychosocial -so factors into performance research. So I personally see it, it it's the kind of way that I like to view my research and the work that I do because like I said to you I work in a really kind of applied way um, but I think typically we focus a lot on these training parameters and periodization and and distribution and how many hours and how many kilometers and what power and what percentage and I think we kind of lose so many other important factors for performance because I see that myself, like I don't really focus too much. I couldn't tell you what my distribution is. I couldn't tell you what percentage of my view to max I'm training at or like which, like whether I'm in zone one, two, three, five, a hundred, however many we're onto now. I could, I honestly couldn't tell you, but I know how to train and I know the other things that are important that kind of lead into a good performance, if you know what I mean. So I think, yeah, just, just as a general overview, it's, it's the, the way that I see it is, is, is a framework, a way to view training and performance through the, the, the fact of the matter that it's more than just biology and it's more than um, those training variables that I mentioned that are going to impact upon performance. And I think in a sport like triathlon that's really complex, um, I think it's even more than biopsychosocial. Um, there's also lots of technical, there's like things like bike maintenance, there's logistics and transitions like just as a quick example while we're on this, cause, cause it did make me smile. Like, um, I, I, I don't, I don't really know anybody in my age group, but I saw there was like an Instagram post cause I don't know if I was, um, tagged or something, but there was a post of the, the lady who came second in my age group, a German person, a German woman. And, um, I kind of saw her kind of race report type thing. And I think we were, there were two seconds between us coming off the bike and it wasn't a mass start, so you didn't know that in real time. Um, but I think there were about two seconds between us just by chance. Um, and then going out of T2, if you look at the kind of tracker, I'm like one minute 35 ahead or something. So I've taken a minute out of somebody 
who's second in the world in my age group um, in T2. And she kind of wrote this post of, oh, I couldn't find where to rack my bike and all this kind of stuff. And I had a shocker and I was so de- deflated and I wanted to give up. But, you know, I'm really proud of myself to stay positive and so on and so on. So that's great. But, you know, these are the mar- margins we're working to. You can't lose a minute in transition. And I mean, I ended up beating her, I think, by two or three three minutes nearly. Um, so she wouldn't have beaten me anyway. But the fact is, is that we're training like hell to gain 20 seconds, 10 seconds on the swim throughout our whole season. And then we can just throw away a minute. And, and, and I'm being a bit mean to like pick on that person, if you, if you know what I mean. But it, it, it's the principle that I think gets overlooked a lot of time. You know, you can get a little bit over-focused on parameters that actually have a lot, a lot less of an impact on your performance than a lot of other things that you could actually do a lot better in. And I think for people that haven't got all the knowledge and all of the ideas, all the idea about it, it's, it's easy for those things to, to happen. You know what I mean? Yeah, you can just, yeah. you can just like, hemorrhage time for a stupid reason and all, all you're, you're really focused – focused on is like you know if your critical power is 233 or 236 it, it doesn't matter like don't, don't waste a minute in t2 <laughs> yes definitely and in terms of the psychological and social factors um can you give uh, one or two examples of what that how that manifests in your yeah in, in your preparation so does that mean that you well you already mentioned things like going out and skiing with friends uh, hooking up with friends for training so i guess that's one of the factors that that is important to you to have that uh, training be a social uh element as well and uh yeah is there anything else that you could point to yeah i think you're right yeah in terms of social it's very much about yeah doing it with friends because they maintain my motivation and also kind of my inspiration so yeah, this morning I've I've got a really nice crew of girls here that I ride with. Um, one's been like a pro cyclist. Um, the other's an extremely good runner. They, they're kind of multi-sport type people. Um, and it, we just know that we typically ride on like a Wednesday and a Friday and a weekend. And they're amazing sessions. And, you know, I, I'm more, I, I would prioritize riding with them. And I'm not, I don't, I don't really follow my power. Or I, I don't measure my heart rate. But I know, you know, I've I've accrued that over time and I've found those people, I've identified them as being like having the same kind of mindset as me. So then we socialize outside of training as well. Um, and I know that they're my little cycle crew and I know that I'm going to get good training with them and that I'm going to improve with them because they're better cyclists than me. And it's not only them that I'll use, but I, I kind of, you know, use different groups who are who are better than me. And it's just that I've created like a little swim squad down here um, because yeah, we've got a triathlon club, but they're not, you know, performance orientated in the same way. I can't go to those sessions and, and win a world champs race. I, I need to kind of create a bespoke, I guess, training arena that works for me. So I've got a little swim squad again with pure swimmers who are better swimmers than me. Um, and then the same with my running. Um, but, but it's, it's all kind of developed with people that I want to spend time with because this is a lot of your time, you know, that, that's how triathlon is, isn't it? It's a lot of your spare time. And, and I don't, I don't do this to be on my own because like I said to you before, I kind of live alone. I know that some people do it for their kind of escape. Um, and I've said this on another podcast, I don't, I don't have a pain cave. I, I, I've never sat on a turbo train. I don't sit on a turbo trainer ever, ever. Um, so I'll go out mountain biking or cross or like, um, on my cross bike like gravel biking um or with my friends like predominantly road biking and time trialing 
but but that's why I do it. I don't want to be kind of in my own little world. Sometimes I do for some sessions. Um, but anyway, so that's that. And then and then it's also the social part is also about like picking races that are in nice locations where I want to travel to with people that I want to travel to and that kind of thing that I mentioned before as well. And then the psychological, um, in terms of performance, that gets more and more kind of race specific, I guess, as the season goes. So like we have got a, um, a car racing track here or a motor, like, you know, like a, a motor, a motor racing track, which I think is about four Ks round. It's a loop. And every so often on a Sunday, they close it for, and well, they open it for cyclists only. Um, and it's every like once every month or two. Um, so I did that as kind of a key session in, I think I did the first one in November, then like January, uh, and then March and then like May or whatever, like something like that. I think it went four or five times. Uh, and that's a scenario where I will measure my power. I will look at my lap splits. It's a really bespoke kind of session. And from the psychological perspective, I was going to kind of mention that I'll do that on my own in my TT bars, like shut everything else out. And, and it will be kind of mental imagery. I'll be thinking about like what I'm doing in a race. I'll be thinking about my pacing. Um, and that's what I don't really use that much data. Like I'll use power a bit on that, but I work mainly to feel and then analyze the numbers kind of afterwards more so and then use that to go forward. Um, because on race day, I go only by feel. I don't go off power. I've got power on my, on my bike and on my watch, but I'm riding hot, hot, like higher powers than I've ever ridden before in a race. And if I'd have ridden to power in Lahti or in, um, the, the British champs race, I'd have ridden like 15 watts lower than what I actually raced at. Um, because I didn't know that that's what I was capable of, but I, I'm so in tune, like with my body and my pacing. And I've done so many races now that I can, that my feel is better than my power meter, I would say. Um, but yeah, from a psychological perspective, that'll involve like mental imagery. And it might be in the winter, like, it's pouring with rain, it's freezing cold. Like that makes you hard, really hard, like to go around to 120 K, like on a closed loop circuit, like 30 odd loops or whatever. Um, in the rain, freezing cold, like two degrees. Um, <laughs> and that, so that, that, that's important to do that. And I might do that with music over the winter, you know what I mean? With like some headphones on, listen to podcasts or whatever. But when it comes closer to race season, then I'm full on into imagery mode and I'm going through everything. And that's where, you know, I like to know what the course is going to be like. I analyze that quite a bit and, and I'm, I'm considering all of these situations and, like on those particular Sundays when I go to that track, I'll do a swim before I on the way to the track and then I'll do the ride and then I'll do a little run off of that ride. And it's all kind of going through and I'll, I'll be thinking about transition and it's all about the imagery. And then like on it, we have a velodrome here in town, like a pretty like low grade, a concrete outdoor velodrome. Um, so it's not like a, a advanced Olympic velodrome, but, but, we have like the, the triathlon club here. We have it for like an hour on a Saturday morning. So that's another day where I might go. I'll be in my TT buys. Like it will be kind of preparing for a race scenario. And then right now, I don't know if you know Park Run. Do you know about Park yeah. Run? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So massive kind of 5K. Um, if anybody's not familiar, yeah, 5Ks every Saturday uh, yeah, across the country and, and across the world now at this point. Yeah, at nine o'clock in the morning. Um, and there's one, so our session is like quarter to eight to quarter to nine on the velodrome. And then there's a park run right next to where the velodrome is. So it's a bit of a club thing. 
that I, I'll tend to do when it suits me. But that's, again, it's the same kind of idea. I'll kind of go through the motions straight down onto the park run. Like, and that's all kind of in my own world. So I'll pick and choose when I'm socializing or being sociable in my training. Um, even though it's performance orientated training, it's still sociable. And when I'm kind of in my own world, preparing for a race and using like those processes to prepare myself psychologically. But I think like pacing, just pacing itself, that's a psychological process as much as anything else. You know, it's not about looking at all the data being fed back to you. It's about like, thinking and feeling i think a lot as well yeah yeah and, and i had uh, andy renfrey on to talk about pacing uh, some months ago and and he's done a lot of research on that so that, that was quite fascinating to hear but yeah that, those are great examples um i guess one question that uh, that i have then is how do you how do you make sure that you don't let's say overdo things uh, how do you make sure that you keep things sustainable do you do you do a recovery on demand strategy that you just feel when you need to rest a bit or, or how, how do you work with that? Um, I do, I have kind of, I guess I'm quite textbook in the way that I think about having sort of a three week period that I can sustain like harder training and then maybe a week lower training. And that's, so when we were talking about the planning process, I mean, that all comes into it as well. I'll kind of work like loosely to a three to one, so that's kind of my start point. And then in that three to one, I have to manage, like I was saying to you, like the travel, where does that fit? Can I fit three weeks in between a travel block, for example? Uh, and you have to also be careful to not have travel and conferences as, as a, like, you know, that, that might come into my physical recovery, but those weeks can be really quite demanding, like in that I sleep less, I'm traveling. So there's like issues with, yeah, infections on airplanes and stuff. Um, and also that they're really quite demanding, like on my brain and, and professionally and intellectually. So, but, but in general, well, I'll kind of work to that and I'll, I'll try and be smart and factor in, right. Is that actually a recovery week when I'm going away skiing with my mates or is that going to be a bit like mad full on? Um, and then like I do monitor, like I actually just use Excel. So, I mean, I've got, I use Garmin and everything loads to Garmin, but I don't use training peaks or any kind of automated system. Um, I monitor everything on Excel because like when I coach myself, because it's, it's, it's one person and I sort of use that transference into Excel as my time to, um, digest and process and analyze what I've done and what I'm doing and where I'm going. And so everything's kind of on a graph and I can, but it doesn't look like at that textbook picture of like three weeks with maybe a slow increment from week one to week two to week three, and then a nice like curve drop and then up again to slightly higher and so on. And so it just doesn't work like that in reality because it might be that I'll, I'll do two of those weeks hard um, and work's just been mad and I'm just exhausted. And then I have to just add in an easy week first. And it might be that then I can put four weeks together or I just don't worry about it. I just do two hard weeks. My recovery weeks aren't massively low anyway. Um, and I find this really interesting because lots of like triathlon podcasts and so or interviews like you know you get whether it's pros or eight like good age groupers on they say how much do you train and they'll spit out a number 30 hours a week 18 hours a week whether it's a pro or a, and I kind of think really what does that actually mean that doesn't actually mean anything and because uh, I analyze because I think about this stuff all the time myself obviously because I, I want to know what's best but but when I analyze it like I 
I had a look at my numbers, for example, ahead of this. So I thought people might be interested. But my numbers are from November to August. So that whole kind of fate, I haven't got my two off-season months of September, October. So when I started my block in November or my season, like pre-season training through to August, my weekly average is 12.6 hours a week. Now, that probably sounds really low, I think. Like if you talk to other people who kind of will chuck out 18, 20, these kind of numbers. But like the range of that is from like three to 18 hours. Some weeks might be, if I get sick, it's a three hour week. So when people say 18, I think really they're really focusing on their hardest week that they've almost had and just kind of talking about that one. And it's, and it's not a true picture of how the, the whole season looks like and how your actual training looks like. So I've got to the point where with my work, with everything else in my life, I can manage like 15 and a half to 16 hours a week is kind of my sweet spot. If I start going over 16 hours a week, I find it so hard to recover. I'm exhausted. I, like the, the training, I can feel it starts to go over the point of being useful and it starts to be, I know that you've got to accumulate fatigue and I, I, I can accumulate fatigue, plenty of fatigue with 16 hours a week. But beyond that, and I just kind of, I can't manage, I'll get sick, I'll get overtrained. I, you know, all the markers of that, so that, that's kind of where I've learned to land. So I can kind of do <clears throat> three weeks that are kind of 15, 16 hours, and then I'll do a week that's kind of 12. And then I might go on holiday or be off, for, you know, and do hardly anything, or I might get sick. Or I've, I've barely got sick, I must say. And I don't, I don't get injured hard, more or less ever. Um, so, so that lands you at a, a quite a different number, if you know what I mean, from what might be banded around. And, and that optimal week of like, 15, 16 hours is about 12K of swimming, 200-ish K of riding, and 50-ish K of running, and then kind of an hour and a half-ish of like mobility, strength, kind of gym supplementary work. So that's, that's I've, kind of, I've kind of accrued that knowledge over time, and I, go, I, I work from there. So, yeah, it is more maybe scientific than it sounds, but there has to be a lot of flexibility but because I'm self-coached and I'm like quite, I guess, knowledgeable about, about all these factors, I find it's just going on intrinsically all the time. I'm just kind of computing these different factors so that I can adjust things. And like this sounds quite extreme, but I'm, I'm going to say this because I think, I think it's relevant. Like, like my best friend died uh, between the British champs and the world champs this summer. Um, which is obviously like a massive impact on my life. But, uh, and, and the reason I say that is because things happen to people all the time, whatever it might be. Um, and you, you, you kind of, it, it's not going to throw everything apart. Like you, you don't have to panic and everything's kind of ruined. Um, so that's, that was quite a, an extreme happening. And I, and I, and I lost a week of training because like when it happened, yeah, I was okay. But like a couple of weeks later, I just got hit like by a bus. It felt like I got hit by a bus. Um, and I just couldn't train how I planned to train in what I felt was a really key week, but I just kind of modified things and had an easy week then and, and supplemented it the, the following week when I felt a lot better again. So I think you, you just have to be flexible and adapt to all these things. Um, I also had a bike crash where like I just got knocked off by a car, uh, the week before that. So, so I, it wasn't like everything was smooth sailing at all. That was the only reason to bring that, that up is because it's not always smooth sailing, but 
you can still work around those kind of experiences, whatever they might be. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a for me as a coach, one thing that I think sets apart uh, in age group triathlon the the athletes that basically improve the most. They are usually the ones that are really good at being adaptable and uh, and flexible and and in the case where they have a coach like the ones that i'm working with then it's about being adaptable together with the coach so as a team of course for you it's like you have to take that full responsibility and uh, but but i think that that's a, a really really important point that you raised there and uh, yeah really sorry to hear about your friend of course um one one thing that i want to ask as well is when you have those weeks you're like let's say your 15 hour 16 hour weeks is a lot of that do you have how how many like harder sessions do you have do you have in there and how much is more just aerobic base work um quite a lot is aerobic base work i mean for the for context for the listeners i'm in the 45 49 category i'm actually still only 44 but i turned 45 um later this year so yeah they kind of put you in that one um and, and i think that's relevant because since I was 35, my recovery is a lot longer. My ability to recover is is worse, and my ability to kind of repeat high intensity work sessions, kind of back to back, or the amount of high intensity sessions I can put into a week is lower. Um, that's that definitely. I've, I've definitely noticed that over the last kind of you know, and it's very slow, but over the last kind of 10 years, I would say that's something that does change. So it's something that you have to be aware of, and I guess it's individual. Uh, it's maybe a bit more severe for women. I'm not not too sure, really. I don't think we've got good kind of data on that. I'm actually really interested to get into some research of kind of masters athletes and look into these things because we really don't know very much at all. But but yeah, sticking to a question. Um, um, yeah, sorry, I was just trying to remember what it was. I this is how my because I've got a basic plan for a week when I'm at home and everything's kind of in in those weeks. And then, you know, I'll modify it around it. But my basic plan is that Monday tends to be sort of quite easy in recovery because I've usually done a lot of work at the weekend, like training wise. Um, so Monday might just be an easy run. And I actually found that some some Mondays I could barely run, like I was just so tired from the weekend. So it might have just been 3K in terms of just ticking my legs over, 3K into kind of a mobility. When I say gym, I don't really do gym or strength because – it got to the point where I had to use that mobility kind of session as a recovery session. And if you start adding in like strength, I just found it wasn't recovery at all. So really it's flexibility, mobility, like working my joints. Um, it might be some sort of core bits um, and some activation, all that kind of stuff. And a lot of like prehab, I've got like a chronic Achilles issue, but it, it doesn't bother me because I, I try to take care of it with these kind of exercises so I've kind of got like a little program that might be like 30 minutes or something of doing that stuff. And then it might just be a really easy, especially in the summer, it'll be like an easy swim in the sea or something. But I've got, we've got a 50 meter um, outdoor pool on the beach next to where I kind of work out my office. So it might be, I'll just get in there and do a K. Or, so Monday's super easy, low volume, no, no goals except for to just be a bit mobile. Uh, and then Tuesday's a hard day in that I do, my swim session with my little crew and that's typically three to five K depending on like the time of the season and what we're doing. And it's kind of my key swim interval session with swimmers that are better than me. Yes. Yeah, so, and, and I, and I write that program so I can sort of 
like run that and people are just fine they just tag along and do whatever I set so that's good and then on Tuesday eve so that's Tuesday morning and then Tuesday evening I'll do my run intervals so Tuesday is actually a really hard day and that might just sound a bit strange but I actually found that that worked really well coming back to that kind of psychological like that made me really tough because that Tuesday evening was really hard because I was all I hadn't recovered I mean 10 years ago maybe I would have recovered in a day in the course of a day but nowadays I don't so I've really got that swim like fatigue from the swim and probably a little bit still from the weekend and the accumulation Um, and that's a really nice group of runners Um, and it'll be kind of intervals that are from typically from like 800 to 3k Um, so 800s 1ks 2ks 3ks those type of intervals with about 8k of volume interval volume 6 to 8k of interval volume in total and I might be like a 12 to 14k run when I've jogged there and, and done all that kind of stuff. So that's a really good quality session. Um, and I will say that like both the British champ, uh, all three races I've had this season, the, the final third of the run at every single one of those races, those sessions have just been at the forefront of my mind, just saying, oh my God, I got so strong from those Tuesdays and those Tuesday sessions, doing them tired in the wind, in the rain, like like you know it 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 comes down to that consistency doesn't it like that's all it's about like and you've put that all in the bank and it really worked so then Wednesday would be like an easy bike spin typically and an easier day might be a, a run some mobility again um Thursday would be um yeah Friday would be another well yeah uh just trying to think Thursday would be maybe a longer run I mean that that wasn't yeah that's not necessarily so specific but then my key like days would tend to be on a Saturday and Sunday where I'd back stuff up on those days I'd I'd get a long run done I'd get a long bike done and I wouldn't always do the long run on a Sunday with the bike on the Saturday because that means you're always doing that long run sort of fatigued from the bike before if it's been like a five hour quite a hard bike um so I'd kind of mix that up depending on, on what I'm doing and so to cut a really long story short, I'll do one like interval run session, a long run that becomes kind of hard because it's long, but it'd only be, it'd be 15 to 25 Ks generally. And I might put some tempo stuff in there. Um, and then my longer bike at the weekend would tend to be three to five hours, something like that. I might do a little run off it. Um, but everything else like would just fit in and be quite low low intensity. Mm. So the bike that that weekend bike is the only kind of hard bike you're doing you don't have a an intense session during the week or uh all through the winter on mon- uh Wednesday evenings I was doing like a 1 hour indoor. So I said I don't sit on the trainer ever but our club has this kind of like you know indoor like spinning kind of room thing mm. so they have like a club session that was intervals. So I did that all through the winter and then going into the summer it might be that I would do like hill reps um, or some other kind of outdoor harder bike. But to be honest, like I often, I, I found it quite hard to fit after a Tuesday, like I might be able to do that on a Thursday, but I found it quite hard um, to be able to do like a really good quality bike intervals when it was getting to closer to race season, when everything was getting to be more thresh up, like my actual longer sessions were harder. So, you know, as it comes into race season, I'm getting a lot more specific. So it might be that like my long bike is just harder or that I've got long 20-minute efforts in there. 
And then I find it quite hard to do a hard bike in the week when I've also got a hard swim and a hard run. So yeah, I can't really manage more than one hard session in each of the disciplines per week. And then I'll manage that around, I'll manage the hardness of it around volume and intensity. Uh, You know what I mean? Like it might be that it's hard because it's long and somewhat intense, or it might be shorter, but more intense. Yeah, no, that, that makes sense. And uh, and I think that's another, I guess, key point to highlight there that you're not hung up on having to fit in a certain number of sessions or in in a week if, if you feel that, well, actually, I'm not really able to fit that week, uh, w- the hill reps on the bike, for example, on a Thursday, because I, I'm just tired from the intervals on the tuesday and i still have the the hard bike coming up a long bike coming up on saturday so so i think that's a good um good good point to mention um just a couple more questions about your training and then we can move on to some other topic but um what day that would you say that you actually monitor and find important in your training if if any oh data did you say yeah um yeah 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 well um i guess i use I guess I use a sort of a mix of objective and subjective kind of variables, which is what the science would say anyway. Um, And yeah, like I said to you before, like I kind of have a plan of a week at the start of it. Like I sit down on a Sunday and plan my week and that week will be planned around everything that's come before it and everything that, you know, I'm trying to achieve into my goals after it. Um, And in that plan, I'll, I'll, know how much swimming I want to achieve how much cycling how much running and then I've got kind of my gym stuff so that's done pretty much on distance I would say because I'm mainly road biking that only becomes problematic when you start doing a lot of mountain biking or or gravel riding where you've got to kind of modify the distances because it's so much slower Um, but typically like I said to you if I'm aiming for like 12 k's of swimming 200 k's of running uh, biking and then 50 k's of running uh, that's that's my main data, I guess, point from there. And then within those sessions, like I said to you, like my run intervals, um, if it's on a Tuesday or if it's a tempo run on the weekend or some sort of tempo part, I'll do that pretty much all off of like run, um, running speed or pace. Um, and because I sort of, you know, know the area, I'll know like if it's slightly hilly, like we have on the Tuesday evenings, we have kind of two locations. It's either the seafront promenade, which is pancake flat, but it can get windy uh, or it's up in a park just up here, which is a little bit undulating. Um, So I I can kind of take into account that as well. So I'll know that like, okay, I'll be running, let's say I'm running three fifties in general, if we're doing K reps, but if I'm into the wind, I don't mind if it's a four Oh two and then I'll do maybe a three forty eight on the way back, you know, like all that stuff just kind of like just automatically getting calculated in. Plus it's a group of people that I kind of know. So I can kind of bounce off the other people that I'm running with so running, it's pretty much pace. Uh, I live on like on the, the downs, it's called. So it's quite a hilly area. So um, before Ibiza, I was doing quite a lot of like off-road runs up on there just for my distance. And then all I cared about was like accumulating distance. And I was running like 32K or something on my long last, you know, my biggest long run leading into that, that race. It was like 32K. I didn't care. I just was out on the downs with some like headphones on. And that will be a, and and I'll know, like if I'm running like six minute Ks, it's getting a bit like crazy slow, but in general, that'll be like five thirties because it's off-road and it's, it's hilly. 
Um, but that, so that's that. And then, like I said to you before, like on the bike, um, I'll use power if I'm on the velodrome or if I'm on the track. But when I go out on my road bike, I don't have power on that bike. Um, so again, it's kind of, we know that we ride at about 29k an hour, um, on a sort of steady ride, just given the terrain that we live in. And if it's a harder ride, it's 32, 33. And, and there's only a handful of people that ride like that. Um, there might be some really good like guys around who'll be, you know, 35 plus that I, I don't ride with or otherwise it's too slow people. So it, it, that's just the group that, that I've kind of found that I ride with that we all ride about, about that pace. Um, and then swimming's just off, yeah, off pace, off the clock. And, you know, if it's, um, yeah, I, I, I'll, I'll, I, I set those swimming sets that's all off like a turnaround time. So, yeah, it will just be hundreds off 145 or 200s off 320 or whatever it'll be and then I kind of know what I'm coming in on so I would say it's mostly like distance pace uh, and to some degree power but that like there's not much more that I use really like um, I don't measure heart rate variability I don't measure my heart rate at all and I used to, I did for years like but now I've kind of accumulated this kind of internal feel that I sort of know where I'm at I think um, and also I just find, I just find that with everything that I've accrued in experience, like that data doesn't give me more than I can give without it because it's also got its issues. It has got its issues, but I, I understand that if you're coaching people and you haven't got that intrinsic feedback, you have to have data. You have to collect information somehow, but when you're self-coached and have got a sports science background, like you're, it's really luxurious position because you don't need to collect that amount of data at all. Um, and what was it? Oh yeah. Things like sleep. I know how important sleep is. Um, and some nights I won't sleep well and like, but, but I know that a really good sleep routine is super important. So I just kind of stay on top of that and I don't wear a ring or get like bogged down with measuring stuff. I just know that I need to get to bed earlier than what I have been recently. And I need to sort that out type thing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and the subjective data do you like do you rate your sessions with a session rpe score or something like that i don't use i don't use numbers to kind of write down and have in my excel file but i certainly like value that and if i if, if i'm coaching somebody else then i would value that for sure um but again i think that's probably something that's just in my mind like i mm. know i know the purpose of every session i know whether i'm trying to work hard in that session, accumulate volume in that session or recover in that session. And therefore I know how, what the RPE in that session should be. And I mean, there'll be times where, um, like the girls that I tend to go out with, if they're just like on fire or trying to push it and I'm trying to like recover from something, I'll just like let them go and do my own thing and vice versa. If it's kind of too much of an easy ride, I'll just get up the front and pull and I'll say, you you guys either stay on my wheel or or I'm pushing on today. So I, I've always got a goal and I always know what I'm trying to achieve with each session. But I can do that pretty much off feel and, and an RPE at the time. But I don't necessarily write it down. Yeah. And uh, do you have any, any, any mistakes that you made in the past in the training that you can look back on and uh, that you have learned from? Or, or anything that you... 15 years ago 10 15 years ago wish that you that you had known then that you that you know now 
Yeah, I thought about this because you, you mentioned this uh, in in kind of like your email. So I did. This is kind of the kind of thing where I'd need to kind of think a little bit. <laughs> and, uh, I don't know if I'm quite bad at identifying my own mistakes or uh, if I think that I'm doing everything right all the time. So I was thinking, I don't really know what that would be, but uh, in, in one way, like I'm really calculated and organized. So it's kind of like I think, well, no, I, I planned everything and I did it as as planned. So I'm not too sure what I could have done different or better. Um, and also, like, yeah, I've had a really good season this year and I haven't had those kind of seasons in previous years necessarily. Um, I hadn't tried to either. Like I've been doing other things, like I've got, you know, other things that I'm interested in. So I, I wouldn't call them mistakes. Um, but I guess, I guess if I'm being really critical, one of the main things, like looking back this year and I've probably, I've, I've trained more and I've been able to put together more, but it has come at an expense. But I guess one thing that I, reflection that I've had is like in previous years, maybe I thought I was working really hard and doing everything I kind of needed to do, but I probably wasn't working hard enough or doing everything I needed to do. And that was kind of probably the difference that I made this year was like, I prioritized this a lot more. I let other things not happen or put them to the side, didn't prioritize them as much um, and worked harder and kind of had that as my main goal. And that does make a difference. So yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure if that's, but, but, but yeah, you can, you can pretty much, you can always probably do more. But, but that said, you, I get I get tired as well. Like, this, but you know, I've tried to do more the, even this year leading into this because you never know how much you need to do to win stuff. Um, so you're doing as much as you possibly can. But when I had tried to push it more, at times I just had to accept the fact that that was too much and I needed to rest. And I just like might like one a Saturday I might get off of a, a bike ride and just literally not move off the sofa from like two p.m. till like th- the evening. And that's actually that's actually quite hard to handle sometimes because you've got loads of other stuff to do <laughs> like nothing else gets done but you're so fatigued that you can't do so how people do this with like kids and stuff running around and wanting taking here there and everywhere I really don't know like I think it's amazing because <laughs> yeah I can be like pretty flat out after my hard sessions I hope that you enjoyed that interview. As always, you can find the show notes on scientifictriathlon.com. We'll have links to Carrie's social media and ResearchGate profile with all of her uh, scientific publications and also a couple of related episodes that we mentioned. I might have missed some, to be honest, but uh, I think we mentioned Evan Sandbach and Andy Renfrey. And if I mean missed somebody else, then you can just go to scientifictriathlon.com and search in the search bar for their name and they will pop up. Part two of the interview with Carrie, which, as I said, is about the female athlete, uh, that will be released in two weeks' time, simply because when I conducted the interview with Carrie, I didn't know that it would be a two-part interview, and I had already scheduled episode 409 to go out, and that will be with Joel Filial, Coach Joel Filial, uh, who uh, is a very well-known and, and one of the most popular past guests on the podcast as well uh so yeah definitely uh look forward to both of those episodes 409 and 410 uh where we will have uh, carrie mcgauley talking about the female athlete which is an area where she has done uh, a lot of research herself 
Uh, and I want to talk uh, or give you another reminder uh, that the re registration for our 2024 training camp in Mallorca is open and uh, we will have a fantastic training camp. And uh, again, I would encourage you to just go to our webpage for the camp, which is scientifictriathlon.com forward slash Mallorca. And you can read the testimonials we have from participants of previous camps. And that will give you a wide ranging perspective of all the reasons to join. And uh, just to read out another short example, here's one participant that said, I loved the location, the people, the coaches and the training. I also loved that we had group meals together for breakfast and dinner. Having the groups and the flexibility to move around every day was fantastic. It gave us all confidence that no matter how we felt that day, we had options and could have a great workout. The coaches were so approachable and willing to chat with us at all the meals on the rides, runs, etc. Every, everyone made such an effort to see how we were doing on both a training and personal level throughout the camp. If you're interested in joining and uh, experience some of this, then check out the webpage scientifictriathlon.com forward slash Mallorca and follow the instructions there to register, or you can email me directly on michael at scientifictriathlon.com. Finally, big thanks to our sponsors, Form, that you can find on formswim.com forward slash TTS. Improve your swim training with real-time metrics like pace, stroke rate, and heart rate, and advanced post-swim analysis, and use the code TTS15 to get 15% off the Form Smart Swim Goggles. And thank you to Senate. Use the Senate Swim Training to improve your technique, power, and swim training consistency. Even if you have just 15 minutes at home available, you can get a time-efficient Senate workout done at home. It will help you swim better and stronger. You can try the Senate risk-free for 30 days and get 20% off your first order on senateswimtrain.com session TTS. Thank you as always for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving craft long.